Hello and welcome to The Lancet Podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Thursday, June the 2nd. In a moment, we're going to be discussing whether the United Kingdom has a problem with iodine deficiency. But first, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Niall Boyce, to discuss something exciting that's happening with The Lancet student. Welcome, Niall. Hello. What is happening? And it's all happening next week, isn't it? Everything's happening next week, yes. The Lancet Student, which has been around since 2007, is going to be relaunched. And why the relaunch now? We looked at the website and we thought, what can we do with this to make this relevant to students, to make it something that, that's a real resource for them, that's somewhere where they'll enjoy going? And I thought back to when I was at medical school, and obviously I attended lectures, uh, maybe not as many as my lecturers would have liked. I learned a lot from books, I learned a lot from ward rounds and from clinical teaching, but I also learned an awful lot from my peers, uh, from the people who I was at medical school with. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could target this website so that that's something that we can provide, that's a unique experience that we can give people who visit that site. Indeed. And I guess the two main features, just to mention, ahead of its relaunch next week, it's quite journalistically run, isn't it? Because you've yes. got four student bloggers. Do you want to talk about that? We've got five student bloggers. They're from all over the world. We had a very competitive selection process. Some uh, listeners might know we advertised on Twitter earlier this year to see if we could get some students who'd want to write to us. And I was somewhat overwhelmed by the response. We got about 170 people. Of those, we got down to five from all over the world. The oldest is 46 years old, Michael, who's from America, who previously was a helicopter pilot and is now at medical school. Then there's Natalia from Argentina, who apparently originally wanted to be an archaeologist, but then discovered that Indiana Jones was in fact fictional and decided to be a doctor instead. From the UK, we've got Patrick, who is a fourth-year medic at Manchester and from Australia, Shampa, and then finally we have a student from Malta who's called Stephanie, and they're going to be sending us about one blog a week for the next year to tell us about their experiences in medical school. And then if you go and read their blogs, you can also comment and discuss on the issues which they raise. The other aspect which I like about the relaunched look of The Lancet Student, and we should say it's the same URL as before, thelancetstudent.com, is access to key and relevant, student-relevant content across the four journals. Do you want to just mention that? Yes. If you are at medical school anywhere in the world, and if you register with our site, you will be able to access some selected content from The Lancet, Lancet Infectious Diseases, Lancet Neurology, and Lancet Oncology, which is available absolutely free uh, for as long as you're at medical school. Terrific. So all it leaves us to say is if you're a student listening to this, you'll also have a very clear access to all the podcasts through the Lancet Student site. Look out next week for the relaunched Lancet Student. And again, that URL, www.thelancetstudent.com. Dr. Nia Voice, many thanks. Thank you. As I mentioned earlier, we're focusing this week in the Lancet about a research article published online Thursday, June the 2nd, looking at iodine concentrations in UK school children. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of this paper, Dr. Mark van der Pump from the Royal Free Hospital in London, and I began by asking him to remind us about the biological significance of iodine deficiency in adolescent girls. Well, iodine deficiency results in poor 
thyroid function or a reduced ability to manufacture thyroid hormone and the particular risk period in the general population is in pregnancy. There are examples in the world where severe iodine deficiency has more general effects. The range of iodine deficiency that we're looking at, particularly in Europe, in the mild to moderate range, a low iodine level at the time of conception or during the early stages of pregnancy reduces the ability of the mother to make increased amounts of thyroid hormone that is needed to ensure the well-being of the fetus and in particular its brain development and its growth. Before we talk about the current study, tell us about what has happened in other countries, how they've gone about assessing whether they have iodine deficiency, and if they have, how have they gone about rectifying it? Iodine deficiency is recognised by the World Health Organisation as one of their major health issues, and in more recent times, the focus has always been on the developing world rather than the developed world, and there was a recent Copenhagen consensus statement in 2008 which identified salt iodisation as the third most important and cost-effective intervention for confronting the global health challenges that the world's population now face. In the developed world, there has been a recognition that iodine levels may be falling, and the major country that's looked at this most recently in Australia, which, like the UK, had been assumed to be iodine sufficient, when they looked at their population recently, they found much lower iodine levels than they were expecting, and they attributed their fall in iodine levels to a reduced amount of iodine content in the milk. Historically, iodinated compounds were used in feeds for animals over winter and in disinfectants and so milk was accidentally given iodine that entered it therefore entered into the food chain so in the UK for example we were always known to be iodine deficient and there are examples when in literature looking back in as early as far back as the 17th century when goiter which is the visible sign of iodine deficiency was described as being as prevalent in the UK or parts of the UK as in Geneva And there were surveys done in the early part of the last century looking at school children which suggested very high prevalence of goiter which would be compatible with iodine deficiency. And in the Second World War, women who arrived to work in the factories were noticed to have a high prevalence of goiter. And so there were studies done at the end of the war which suggested by the MRC um, looking at the goiter prevalence. And at that time, iodine was being raised as a worldwide issue. And many countries in Europe undertook iodization of salt as the way that they removed this as a health issue. The UK never adopted salt iodization. And uh, so we got lucky, and it was called an accidental public health triumph, because at that time, two things happened. One is that iodine entered into the food chain via the change in farming practices. And secondly, the governments were so concerned about the health of the, particularly the children post-war with rationing, etc., that they ensured that every child had a drink of milk at school. There was a very nice graph plotting the increase, the gradual increase in iodine levels in the population from the 50s onwards. And so by the time we got to the sort of 90s and 80s, the, the goiter prevalences were much lower. And so it was deemed that our problem had been resolved. Thank you. Very interesting context. Just turning briefly to the study, we want everyone listening to the podcast to, to read the study and very readable it is too. Why this study now? Why a focus on UK schoolgirls at this time? I'm a member of the British Thyroid Association and I suppose it was to some embarrassment that I'd go to national inter- or international meetings and see charts of the world and their iodine status and the UK always had this sort of question mark as no data. So there never has been a systematic survey of the British population. There have been one or two cohorts studies recently which has looked at selected groups such as pregnant women in small areas or or adults which has sort of suggested that there's a problem. We also know from a survey of supermarkets that only two 
brands of salt out of 36 actually had sufficient iodine in them. So we knew that we weren't getting iodized salt into our food. So the World Health Organization, WHO, set the methodology of how one assesses the population's iodine status. They suggest that you look at 6 to 12-year-old children and that you try and include lots of centers in different areas to try and get a feel for the population rather than just in one area. We chose schoolgirls. One is that we felt they'd be more compliant in terms of cooperating with the study because you need a urine sample to measure iodine as a way of assessing the population. And we also chose that group because, as I mentioned earlier, the main risk period is in the pre-pregnancy or preconception time when that's the time when you need your iodine status secure and you need to have your thyroid status to be at its maximum. Interestingly, there were one or two other studies recently that showed, and this was in New Zealand and also a study in Albania, which had a much worse iodine status than the UK, even up to the age of 13 or 14, that that children's brains may not be fully myelinated and that actually you may have an impact in improving IQ or in terms of um, psychometric testing, etc., even up to mid-adolescence, when by which time the brain is fully formed. So although we concentrated on children from the pregnancy aspect, clearly boys and girls would benefit less than 14 to the point their brains are fully developed. Just briefly summarise the methods and key findings from the current study. As part of the British Thyroid Association, what we did is we recruited centres from around the UK and we ensured that we included Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, as well as parts of England. And so each centre tried to recruit sufficient schoolgirls. And it was quite a tough job because we had to go to schools. We did a presentation on what the thyroid was, why it was important, and how important it was to contribute to the World Health Organization's studies. And uh, But trying to get a urine sample from the schoolgirls proved quite a tough task for most of us. So eventually we got sufficient samples, enough to have statistical power to make a judgment on, on this group. And so what we found was that um, we had a median urinary iodine in the total population um, of 80 micrograms per litre, which was in the mildly deficient range. Because the more iodine you have in your urine, the more iodine you have in your system. The World Health Organization define mild, moderate deficiency and iodine sufficiency using the median urinary iodine. So I think it's an important point that people say, what's my urinary iodine? What you're doing is you're contributing to, to the group. It's a group measurement rather than an individual measurement. The methodology allows you to make a statement about the group rather than each individual. Iodine level in the urine usually reflects what you've eaten over the last five days or so. We didn't use goit examination or measurement of thyroid function because that really is the next phase. When we undertook the study, we really just didn't know whether we had a problem or not. So we very much, this was very much an initial study to look at whether the problem needed looking at in the UK. So do we have a problem? Mild deficiency doesn't sound like a big problem. The issue is that if you're iodine deficient going into a pregnancy, your thyroid actually has much more major demands made on it. The problem becomes is that the baby's thyroid starts manufacturing its own thyroid hormone from about 12 to 14 weeks gestation. So before that point, the baby is completely reliant on mum and and her production of thyroid hormone. So if mother goes into the pregnancy suboptimal and not able to manufacture the increased thyroid hormone in demand in the first trimester in the early pregnancy, then the baby becomes thyroid hormone insufficient. And it's been recognized that actually quite subtle changes in thyroid hormone status can have a big impact on the baby's brain development. What conclusions do you draw? You've you've stated that from your population study here that 
within the UK schoolgirls based on your study are mildly deficient in iodine, what needs to happen? This was an initial study. We could look at whether we need to actually do a much wider study, perhaps focus on pregnant women, and I know studies have been done on that because usually pregnancy shows much lower iodine levels than than you would have pre-pregnancy. We can argue that the public health message is we're low, much lower in iodine than we thought. It's probably much more of a significant problem than was expected. So I think there needs to be a debate on how we go about correcting this um, iodine deficiency, which is, I think, much more significant than was expected in public health terms. So notwithstanding the debate, you say that needs to happen, what type of solutions could there be for iodization? The thyroid community is very conscious of the message about salt, and clearly the public health message is that salt is bad for you, but it's recognized that 90% of our salt intake comes through processed food. None of those manufacturing processes currently includes iodized salt, and indeed in the Australian model, they iodize salt that enters into bread. So that's one option, iodizing the salt, and that's what the World Health Organization prefer as its national solution, and that's an evidence-based approach, and there are models which has done that, um, such as Denmark. The alternative is to use a targeted strategy to perhaps pre-pregnant women, much as the same way we might talk about folic acid or vitamin D, as a way of targeting the population, but it's recognized that a perhaps up to half the pregnancies in this country are are not planned and so the point about the thyroid is that you need it right at the very start of the pregnancy not and you know if you're waiting until sort of 12 10 12 weeks in you sort of missed the point that you can actually make a successful intervention final question uh, dr van der pump are there any other ways of getting iodine into the system other than salt? Are there, are there any other natural dietary sources of iodine? Yeah, so we, what we did with our schoolgirls is we looked, we gave them a dietary questionnaire and actually showed that the girls that were drinking far less milk than the others had much lower iodine levels in their urine. And if you have a cup full of milk a day, you get approximately half your recommended iodine intake. And there's evidence from the Milk Marketing Board figures that milk intake is decreasing in the population. And so we suspect that the problem isn't so much as in Australia where the concentration change, but actually it's probably milk intake that's decreasing rather than the concentration in our particular country. We also found within the UK that Belfast seemed to be a much bigger problem than the others, and I was quoting a number of 80 earlier. Well, Belfast were much lower than that, nearer 60. There's been data from Southern Ireland which suggests that Southern Ireland is at a similar level, so there may be geographical reasons because we didn't find anything in terms of the diet that was unique about Belfast compared to the rest of the UK in terms of the questionnaire data. Dr. Mark van der Pump on the line from the Royal Free Hospital in London. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much indeed for for speaking to me about our study. And do look out for the comment alongside this research article, published online Thursday, June the 2nd. Well, that's all for this week. Many thanks to our contributors and to you all for listening. See you next time.